This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. And a guten Erev Shabbos to you. Delighted to be with you on this very special Erev Shabbos where we start a brand new Chumash, a brand new book of the Torah. We move from Bereshis to Shmois, from Genesis to Exodus. And with me in the studio today, I'm delighted to welcome two very special visitors, my dear daughter, Dini Freundlach from Beijing, and her lovely daughter, Grunya, who are visiting here in Johannesburg to our great delight. And they were, they are joining us today to share with us a little bit about their shlichus, their life, their mission, as it were, in that corner of the world. And how apt it is because the Parsha is actually an amazing one. We move from last week. We move from the entire book of Genesis, which is the story of a family. It's a story of creation, the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the story of Sarah, Rivka, Rachaleah, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, and the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a story of a family with a destiny. But now there's a big shift. Now it's about building a nation. Now that family begins to enact what is going to be and continues to be the nation, the mission of the nation, the mission of the Jewish people. And of course, the book that we've started now talks about the descent into Egypt. It's a review. And then it's going to highlight with Exodus and the giving of the Torah at Sinai and then the building of a tabernacle for Hashem, the building of a home for God in this world. Of course, symbolically, we continue that mission of building a home for God in this world. God created the world and it's unfinished. Our work in this world is to complete it. And the question is how? How do you complete creation? How do you make God's work perfect? And amazingly, Hashem has left a space that only we can complete. Because when God created the world, it was in order that He have a dwelling place in this world. Yes, before the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge between good and evil... The world was, in a sense, perfect. But then that perfection was disrupted. The perfection that we can reach, the perfection to which the world will be restored, is beyond what it was in the Garden of Eden. And that is what each and every one of us is involved in right now. In fact, we're so close to the coming of the Mashiach that we are but putting the finishing touches on this magnificent home for Hashem. But it's a big home. It's not only a home in terms of the four corners of the world, but it's a home in terms of each and every one of us becoming a fitting vessel to greet God's presence and to live together with Him here in the physical world. 
and the reason, the purpose for descent into exile, for spreading out to the four corners of the world, is in order to refine every corner. So the destiny of a family, as it moves toward nationhood, is what we focus on now. They're going to become a nation. They're going to receive the Torah at Sinai. And we will be back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. And a good Erev Shabbos to you all. It is Erev Shabbos Parshas Shmois. We've started the second book of the Torah, which we will read in shul. Please, God, tomorrow. And today we are talking about the relevance of that portion in our lives. Amazingly, candle lighting for some shuls is still 6.15, but for other shuls, 6.46. And Shabbos will go out tomorrow night as late as 7.39. Yes, the days are very long now. And Shabbos has been given to each and every one of us as a day of study, as a day of spiritual and physical rest, as a day of togetherness with family. And I am delighted that my family is with me. Not only my dear mother, but our children are here from Beijing. And joining me here on the radio today is Grunya, who's 10 years old. Hi, Grunya. Hi. You want to say hi to all the listeners? I'm sure they're thrilled. They probably want to hear you say something in Chinese. How would you say hi in Chinese? Ni hao. Ni hao to everybody. And her beautiful mom, my daughter, Dini. Hi, Dini, and welcome. Good Erev Shabbos. It's nice to be here. It's wonderful to have you guys, and thank you for joining me on the radio. So we were talking in the ad break that the amazing thing is that last week's parsha is called Vayechi and He Lived. And where did he live and who lived? It was the patriarch Jacob who lived in the land of Egypt for the last 17 years of his life. And the question is asked, and it was asked by a child. Did you know that, Grunya? And the child was being raised by his grandfather. And that's a whole special story on its own. And this child, whose name was Menachem Mendel, he grew to be the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek. He came home from school and he told his grandfather that the teacher had taught him that the best years of this glorious royal patriarch Jacob were spent in the most negative place in the world, a place where people didn't respect each other, where people didn't think about Hashem, a place where there was immorality, no values. And he asked his father, his teacher, how can it be? And then he asked his Zeta, how can it be that the holy patriarch Jacob, who came down from the holy land of Israel, should spend his best years, because you know this number 17, the word tov, the best years, tov is 17. So for 17 years, he's in Egypt, and these are the best years of his life? not surrounded by holiness, not living in the holy land, in a holy community, in the shul, in the yeshiva, but in Egypt. And we all know that the Egypt of that time was really not a place where Jewish values and a holy spirit 
rested. So he asked his grandfather, how? And his grandfather answered, because before he even went down, he sent his son Yehuda. And his son Yehuda was sent ahead to prepare the way, but basically to open a yeshiva. Because if the Torah is the center of our lives, we can exist anywhere. And not only did they live in Egypt and survive, they actually thrived. And so, when people ask, how could the Lubavitcher Rebbe take young people and send them to a corner of the world where there is no community, no atmosphere, no Jewish school, no mikveh? And I'll never forget that story that our teacher in seminary told us. His name was Rabbi Gordon, and he's Yossi Goldman's uncle. And Rabbi Gordon um, was asked by his daughter. His daughter's teacher had challenged her. daughter's teacher said, How does your Rebbe send young couples out to places where there's no infrastructure, no community? Doesn't he know that if you pour a pot of boiling water into a cold lake, it's not going to warm up the lake. The lake will cool off the hot water. So how can he do that? How can he take a chance that they go to a place where there's no environment, no atmosphere, and will their own values and their own Yiddish guide be preserved? And he thought about it, and he said, that's a good question. And then he said, I think I know the answer. As long as you're connected to the fire. You keep on boiling up that pot of water over and over and over again, and eventually you do affect your environment. And that pot of water is the Torah. As long as we stay attached to our source of life, Torah is called a fiery law from Hashem, we will survive. And I'd like to turn the show over to you, Grunya, and to your mom, because I know that you have many things to tell us about what you have achieved, what life is like in Beijing, and what you've achieved, Dini, in the years since you got there. What did you find when you came? And amazingly, the success that you've had, and how did that all come about? I think what you mentioned is the most important thing, that yes, you go to a place that is really a desert in terms of spirituality, but staying connected, that is the most important thing. And when the Rebbe of Blessed Memory sent his shluchim, his emissaries, to all places in the world, it was always with the vision that we stay connected, always with the, the idea that no matter what we do and no matter what we face, it's always with the Rebbe's teachings and the Rebbe's guidance and with staying connected to our source. Um, coming to Beijing, when we arrived there, there was nothing Jewishly, very, very little. A few families that had been living there for a number of years who came together every few Friday nights for Rosh Hashanah, for Pesach Seder, but like you said, there was no shul, there was no mikveh, no Jewish school, no kosher food. It was really a desert in terms of Yiddishkeit. And one of the reasons that it was like that is that Beijing is the capital of China, and China is a communist country. 
And Judaism is not one of the recognized religions there. And so it was always a very, um, being the capital city, it was always seen as a place to stay away from in terms of anything um, religious or anything that was going to turn the government eye to see and to question. Um, even in the history of Beijing, there was never a Jewish community that we know of because there was no port and it was always the capital. So nobody came there, no refugees, no business people over the history, um, even though there were many, many Jewish communities in China dating back a few hundred years ago to the community in Kaifeng and then in Harbin, in Shanghai, in Tianjin, in Qingdao, port cities that had business people and many, many refugees. But Beijing never had any of that. So when we arrived, we were really um, trailblazers coming to a place that not only didn't have anything, but also wasn't open to anything. Any Jew that had was living in Beijing or thinking to come to Beijing, um, Yiddishkeit was definitely not on their radar. It wasn't something that they were looking for. So from many angles, we had a lot of challenges, both from our host country making sure that we followed within the rules and respected their guidelines and made sure that they knew that we weren't there to jeopardize or to break any laws and to respect how they want religion run. And as well as for the people in the community who were very, very skeptical in terms of anything that was organized religion or too from, then they didn't want us there. Hmm. That's fascinating, Dini. And how long have you been there? Um, 16 plus years. So you're in your 17th year. 17th How apropos. with the parasha. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. Good nerve, Shabbos. Delighted to be with you. I'm Mashi Lipsker on 101.9 High FM. And thrilled that with me today in the studio is not only my dear mother, but my special daughter, Dini, and her daughter, Grunya, and they live in Beijing in China. And we were speaking about that in the Parsha, the decree that Pharaoh passed over his nation was that they find Jewish children and throw them into the Nile. And the decree was called Habain Hayiloid, any male child that is born, Hayyoira Tashlichu, who throw him into the Nile. And the girls didn't get away easy because and all the daughters shall you keep alive is explained as keep them alive in the Egyptian style. Assimilate them because when the mother believes in certain things, that's how the home will go and that's how the children will go. And of course, that brings us back to the center that we need to have, and that is to follow the teachings of Torah. And as Dini beautifully explained, Torah as it is expounded and explained and made relevant by a mentor, by a master. And of course, our privilege is to be Hasidim of and students of the Rebbe and his teachings. And so, of course, there is guidance for everything. We just have to look for it. And the question is, how do you keep your children from being thrown into the Nile? Because thrown into the Nile means just 
swim with the stream, get into the lifestyle. We want to be modern. It's a modern world. Let's dress modern, cut our hair modern, eat modern. Let's not be different to everyone else. Let's go to school with everyone else. Let's just be a human being. And of course, we know that Jacob distinctly blessed each one of his children before he passed away. And they were ready in Egypt, and each one got a special blessing. We are not a melting pot. Our distinct differences make for a healthy society. Our dignity of knowing who we are, and then to be able to contribute to making this world a better place with our pride, our Jewish pride, our ethnic pride, our cultural pride, our Yiddishkeit pride. And so, Dina, you were talking before, talking about having been in Beijing now for 16 whole years and what you found when you came there. So take us onward a little bit to how you developed the system. And I believe there's a school there. So maybe we can... Let Grunia tell us a little bit. When we got to Beijing, we didn't have a school. And so our oldest two, Mushka and Devora, we started out homeschooling them. And we also used the amazing um, online school that's from New York for Shluchim's children around the world, which we still use as our children get older for their Jewish studies. But we did open a Montessori Jewish school. And even though the numbers are often very small, um, depending on who's living in Beijing at the time, as it is a very transient community, um, our children are very, very blessed that they get picked up by a bus in the morning and they do go to a Jewish school. And maybe Grunia can tell us a little bit about what she learns at her school, what language she learns in, about how it's different to a school in Johannesburg. So in our school, we learn half of the day, we learn... Um, Hebrew and English and then we learn 30 minutes Chinese and then in different days of the week we get different kind of like not after school activities it's like in school activities and what activities do you have? we have swimming, we have art we have technology and cooking cooking yeah. So what languages do you learn at school? How many languages? Three languages. Yeah, can you speak all of them? Yes. How do you think a school here is different to the school in Beijing? Because in the school here, in each class, I don't know how many kids can be in each class, but in the school in Beijing, I only have one kid in my class. Hmm. And what language do you feel comfortable speaking? In Hebrew and in English. You have a very good Hebrew. I'm most impressed. And I must tell the listeners that Grunia's trying to che- teach me Chinese. Are you my Lauscher? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a Lauscher. That's wonderful. So I'm trying hard to cash in while they're here. I mean, it's just so wonderful having them. But there's so many things that Grunia knows how to do. And in her creative, incredible way. And I really believe that her education has stimulated that creativity. What made you want to open a Montessori school, Dini? I think there were two main reasons. One being that 
with a very small community, Montessori has mixed age groups, and so it works that you can have um, less kids, less teachers, and still reach all the children at their academic levels. I also believe in the Montessori method. I believe that every child is very different. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're six, you should be learning a certain kind of reading, writing, etc., Maybe you're ready when you're four or five. Maybe you're ready when you're seven or eight. And um, in a Montessori system, it's very, very much guided by where the child is at. And it allows a child not to be separated from their friends and their age group because of an academic need, be it that they be advanced or delayed. It doesn't matter. They just are where they are academically, but it's not seen as a child who should be in grade one or is, and is being kept back a year, or a child who should be in grade one and is being put with grade three children. So um, that was another reason that I very much um, went with the Montessori method. And I believe there was a time when you actually manufactured Jewish Montessori things. Yeah, together with the Shluchim office in New York. Some of the things that we had developed for our classroom in Beijing, many teachers had, had asked us for them, so... We made Jewish Montessori works um, that were available and still are. To what many. sort of things? Sandpaper olive bays, movable olive bays letters, um, different works on different parshas of the week. Um, in Montessori, which is different to traditional education, there's not a lot of um, worksheets or textbooks. It's more of a hands-on, visual um, kind of a learning. And so the you have to develop a lot of the works that have been developed for Montessori to convert them into a Jewish, um, with a Jewish theme, with a Jewish idea. Hmm. And the furniture? Well, w when we opened our school, we very much wanted to build a special, a special place. And we were lucky enough living in China that that's something that we could do. And so that was another thing that when people saw how our school looked, and we're very proud of it, it is a very beautiful school. They wanted that as well. So we added that to the Montessori works through the Shluchim office in New York. Hmm. And you say they have um, extra murals, as it were, but they're during school. So where do they swim? So where we have our school, Grinia, where do you go swimming? Well, they're in the complex of the school because the school is very small. It's not such a big school. So in the complex, it's, there's a clubhouse. So there we do our swimming. Because the school is in a house, in a complex. Oh, it's a house it's in a, a complex. Yes, uh, it's a very big a building in a complex. That's amazing. Wonderful. Yes, the school, Jewish education, is at the heart, at the center of a community. And, of course, Chabad doesn't only teach children. They don't only teach adults. They don't only teach men. They don't only teach women. And, of course, the creativity that comes in to just reach out, share Torah, share Hasidic teaching, and nobody's ever too young or too old, like in Montessori. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you also have built a magnificent mikveh. Yeah, one of the things that was a challenge when we moved to Beijing was obviously that there was no mikveh. And, and what did you do? Traveled a lot. <laughs> Early morning trips to Hong Kong, which is about a three-hour flight. And it's an international flight, even though Hong Kong is a part of China. It's still considered an international trip. Hmm. So it would take from very, very early in the morning till very, very, very late the next night to get back and forth. 
Wow. But we're very, very lucky. We have a beautiful mikvah. Um, one of the things about our community in Beijing is that it's a very big mix of people, be it the people that live there who work in the embassies, many, many students who are there for either one semester, a year, even, and there are now more and more that are coming for their full four years of university. In um, which language do they study? It depends. Some of them um, who are there for just a semester are learning in English. Some of them come to learn Chinese. But some of them are big and brave, and they're actually doing four years in Chinese Whoa. at Chinese universities. But we also have a lot of overseas visitors that come. And so we were very lucky that some of those visitors who visit from New York, from the Satma community, they helped us to build a mikvah, which was a very, very special thing. Wow, wow. And of course, the it's difficult to say what the, the crown jewel is, but we were amazed several years ago to be at the opening of your, of your center. How did that come about? Um, everybody, when they see the Chabad House building in Beijing, they always ask, oh, is this the 10-year plan? And we always say, this is the never plan. Um, we never imagined that we would have a building on the street. Um, all of the other Chabad houses in China are housed out of homes, either where the shluchim, the emissaries live, and one floor becomes the shul in the Chabad house, or a separate house. Again, and that's what you had for years and years. Because going back to the whole thing that it is a communist country and Judaism is not a recognized religion, and so um, in order to follow the guidelines of the government to make sure that it's only for foreign passport holders, that we are never seen as proselytizing, um, which is their big concern, and so we, it was kept in a house. Um, we were, there were a few business people in the community who felt that it was time to open a kosher restaurant. And because till that time, all the food that was coming out of, anyone who needed kosher food was coming out of our kitchen from the house. And so together we opened a kosher restaurant, which they kindly named Dini's. <laughs> and they said, till now, all the kosher food was coming out of your kitchen. And it was opened on a small... Like Midrachov, um, of like a street of only restaurants, about forty-five restaurants, and it was like in a almost like in an alley. It yeah. was behind the the buildings. It was it wasn't on the street. But all the all the restaurants there were um, every kind of international food, um, oh. and it was seen as a strip of streets of just restaurants. Uh, do you remember the restaurant, Grunier? It was before your time. I think I was very small, or I wasn't even born. No, you were born, but you were small. <laughs> We opened it when I was expecting Grunia. Oh, so you are a bit connected to the restaurant. <laughs> and um, we got notice on the 15th of May that on the 1st of June, all the restaurants were being demolished. Sure. And so um, they were making way for a new construction project, which happens very often in Beijing. Very often. Eh? Very, very short notice that it was going to happen. But um, Grunia reminded me of a story this morning that happened when they came for the... Um, demolition, so to speak, to let us have notice that they were taking them down. A police car drove into the street, and what did they do, Grunia? They spray painted all the restaurants except ours. So in China, when they're going to demolish something, there's a symbol, the character is Chai, which means to demolish. <laughs> and they come and they just spray paint that character, that Chinese character, on the buildings that will be demolished. <laughs> and when they arrived, they went from restaurant to restaurant, about 40, 45 restaurants, and they spray painted on all of them. 
but they didn't spray paint on ours, even though we also got noticed that we had to move. And when Shimon, my husband, was speaking with the police officers, who he has built a very good relationship with, and asked them why, their response was very, very interesting. They said that they had remembered that he had explained to them the story of Kristallnacht and the Holocaust, and how, as Jews, we are very, very sensitive to a Jewish building, a Jewish infrastructure being destroyed, because it brings up for us the very terrible memories of Kristallnacht, which led into the Holocaust, and they, were, they felt that it, even though they're going to take it down and we're not, no longer going to have that restaurant, they didn't want to spray paint it because they didn't want to make us have that feeling that in China, where they are hosting us, um, we should ever have a feeling of being unwanted or uncared for. Wow. So it was very, very interesting for us. But Dini, who had that sensitivity? Did that come from the authorities or from the actual demolition crew or the... The no, police? It, was, it was coming from the authorities who are in turn to the police. Oh, wow. Because over the years, they, you know, had met us and um, seen that Yiddishkeit is not a proselytizing religion, that we're not there to break any of the laws, following the laws very, very strictly. We report before every umtif a month before. We go down to the police station. We let them know ahead of time. They do already have our calendar, so they know. But we have to come a month before, which is the law and report to them, Hanukkah is coming, this is exactly what we're going to be doing, Rosh Hashanah is coming, um, Pesach will come, and it, just so that they... Sukkot? Everything, we have to get permission to put up a sukkah. Hmm. Um, our first year that we were in Beijing, we actually came to South Africa, because we couldn't get permission to put up a sukkah. Um, we, second year, we put up a sukkah, and... Um, they were there within minutes, and we only managed to get permission and put up the schach. I think I had already lit candles, and we had put up a pop-up tent and cut off the roof in the back of our garden so that my husband Shimon, he said, at least there'll be somewhere where I can eat. Um, but over the years, um, they've learned, and they've become very... Actually, we have a very close relationship, and I think it, it stems from the fact that we've always been very, very careful to follow their guidelines, follow their rules, and be respectful as a host country that we're visiting, and these are their <laughs> rules. And in turn, they've appreciated that respect and have been very, very kind and respectful, um, always taking care whenever there is an incident, whether it's one of the wars in Israel or something happens to Jewry anywhere else in the world. Very often they come to us before we go to them, or we've even heard about it. And they say, we're here, we're watching, we're keeping a careful eye. Um, and so we feel very taken care of and we feel very safe in the sense that um, we're very, very lucky. We are. And um, we're very privileged that there isn't any anti-Semitism in China. So you know, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. As it says in Ethics for Our Fathers, who is honored... He who honors others, he who honors God's creatures is the one that has, that gets honor in return. Honor isn't something you can demand, but you actually deserve. You, you build it up and you deserve it. Yes, that, that's quite amazing, but that it should have culminated in the fact that you have a Chabad center, which clearly says on the outside what it is, and that it houses 
two kosher restaurants, and it's on a main street, and it's a big, big building. How did that come about? So once the restaurant was being demolished, we started to look for a place to rebuild the restaurant. Well, where did the restaurant go once they they <laughs> What happened then? Did it Went come to, back to your house? Yes, back to our dining room. Wow. Um, and, and at that point, you really didn't have the facility anymore. Previously, when you looked for a home, you looked for something that could also house the shul and, and people coming to eat. But here, this was a surprise. Yeah, the shul was still in our house, but we then turned our house into a restaurant yeah which was interesting and challenging but um we were very we were very surprised at how difficult it was to find a place because if you imagine 45 restaurants in one neighborhood come down everybody's looking for somewhere to go this is unbelievable dini thank you so much we're not letting you go yet but we will be back after this short break this is Conversations with Mashi Lipsker. I'm Mashi Lipsker. This is 101.9 Chai FM. And we are having a fascinating overview of the growth of Chabad and Yiddishkeit in Beijing, of all places, in the capital of China. And we have Dini Freundlich and her daughter Grunya with us here in the studio. And Dini's telling us of the the saga of um, their kosher restaurants. I mean, the question, Dini, is how do you get kosher food? How do you get ingredients? Do you speak Chinese? <laughs> I do speak a little bit, but not as well as my children do. Um, I think are that, they all born there? Um, no. The only one who was actually born in China is Ella, who's our youngest. Grunia was born in South Africa. Some born in Hong Kong, and our oldest born in New York. So it's a very international family. Um, one of the things that I think it's important to mention is that having a restaurant is has and is still not my uh, passion or my calling necessarily, but. Um, one of the things that we realized very, very quickly when we came to Beijing was that the physical needs of the community had to be met. Not only the spiritual needs. Obviously, you know, you want to build a mikvah and you want to have a shul and you want to do all the very Jewish things. But people needed those physical things taken care of. And because there, there was no um, structured community per se, and because, you know, it's not like you community where um, you you live there your whole life, your family lives there, your grandparents, your cousins, etc. Um, people come in for two to four years on an average and then they leave. It's a very transient community and there is no established infrastructure other than Chabad in Beijing. Um, what what sort of people come? Who makes up the, the community, albeit transient? Um, a lot of embassy employees. Um, the Israeli embassy, the American embassy has between 30 and 40 Jewish families. Hmm. Um, Argentine, the Argentinian embassy, Canadian embassy, many of them have um, Jewish people working for them. Many, many students. Um, El Al has a lot of staff that are living in Beijing. Some young entrepreneurs, some people for finance. But that's the basic makeup of the community. About 2,000 Jews that live in Beijing at any given time. But there are between twenty and 30,000 visitors that come through that wow. we interact with. Wow. And so we realized very quickly that 
what had to be established wasn't necessarily the very, I don't know if you want to say, obviously Jewish things, but more just to be there for people, to be their family, because people are there without a family. So, for example, on Friday nights, we never eat at home. We always eat in the Chabad house. And we feel like it's our dining room. And many families from the community, it's without even question that that's where they'll be on Friday night. Young people from the community, students, an average Friday night is 100, 150 people, up to 300 in the summer. And we realized very quickly that we needed to be there for anything. So we've, we've dealt with the whole spectrum of what people need. And food is obviously one of the very important things that speak to people. Um, many of the Israelis, they miss whether it's cottage cheese that we can bring in for them um, or some of the students, they miss challah. We bake about, I don't know, probably two to 3,000 small challah rolls hmm. per, um, per week. Per week. Um, in this country, kitka rolls. <laughs> um, but to be there for people, whatever their needs might be, and very often they are, they're Jews that um, would have nothing to do with us. And then when it comes to a tragedy, an emergency, a need, um, Chabad is there because we, we are the only established community. We're the ones we've been there a long time and we can be there to help, whether it's, God forbid, a sudden death in the community. Um, we don't have a cemetery in Beijing so that we have to help facilitate. Um, whether, unfortunately, some young people in the community get in trouble with the law and um, because of our good relationship with the police, very often they'll be bailed out to us. Um, bringing someone chicken soup when they don't feel well, um, being there for them just as a friend and as a family. So the Chabad house, even though initially we said we'll just be a restaurant, we were very lucky to find this beautiful piece of land, which is government land, and we were able to put up a building. And it's seen as a home and one of the things that we always say is that the Lubavitcher Rebbe didn't say Chabad centers he called them a Bet Chabad a Chabad house because it needs to be each and every person's home every person's house and that's what we strive to have a place where people feel comfortable to come in any time of day um, whether it's for food whether it's just to talk whether it's to get a book to read whether it's for a cup of coffee whatever, whatever it might be for um, being there on the street has enabled us to be seen and people who wouldn't necessarily find us are able to um, just pass by. Walk-ins. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So tell us in your building, what what comprises the building? What What sort of sections do you have? I mean, obviously I've been there, but the listeners I'm sure would adore to know through those doors, what do you find? So we have a, the first floor, we have a small kosher shop where we bring in products mostly from Israel. Most of our community is Israelis. And we have a small shop where we bring in the things that people miss from home. Um, Turkish coffee, cottage cheese. Um, we have to bring everything in our suitcases. So there's a lot of schlepping going on. But we have a small shop. Um, we have a kid's playroom which um, is gla with glass walls, which leads into the restaurant where we host Shabbos. So is the restaurant open during the week as a restaurant? Yes, during the week we have a restaurant with a menu, and then for Shabbos we just move the tables, set them up, 
family style, line them up and um, fit in as many as we can, plus one. Wow. So, so people are welcome. Yeah. Within the community, there's, it's not a charged thing. Um, so people just message us and say they're coming. And sometimes they don't message and they just come. And we're happy because that means that um, our mission is being accomplished. People feel at home. And then we have, on the second floor, we have our shawl and a small dairy cafe and office space as well. And the shul is actually built in, incorporated with a museum, a museum of the history of the Jews of China, because we felt it was very, very important for people to know that China was a safe haven over all these years for Jews, whether it was um, two centuries ago in the late 1800s, whether it was at the turn of the 19th, whether it was running from the Bolsheviks, whether it was the Second World War or business-wise, Jews have found a home. And yes, there were many years from about 1948, 1949 till the late 70s that there were no Jews in China. But um, now many, many have come back. And we want people, both the Jewish people that visit or live there, as well as Chinese students and youth, to know that um, there's a rich history and a rich connection between us. So what sort of things are in your museum? We've collected many items, many um, books that were published by um, different yeshivas that were exiled and came through Shanghai and were saved from the Holocaust. We have Svarim from the Mir Yeshiva, from the Lubavitch Yeshiva that was there, Chachmei Lublin. We have items, photos. We have um, yards, pointers from Sifrei Torah that were um, made in Harbin by some Jewish silversmiths. And they've incorporated both the yard with Hebrew words, but incorporated some Chinese elements to it. One yard has a dragon. Um, another yard has jade on it, which is a traditional Chinese um, stone. Um, we have letters that were sent from and to Jews in Shanghai and, and um, other cities. We have passports with stamps that, and visas that showed how the Jews traveled through. So many different artifacts that we've collected to um, to make a small museum. And you have paintings of shuls. So we've we've made on the windows in the shul. Gunya, you want to tell them what we have in our windows? We have um, different shuls from all over China. What are they made of? The um, the glass stain colors and they're really pretty and they're on each window all over the women's section and the men's section. So we had basically from what we researched we found that there had been um, 11 shuls. Some that still stand today but are not used as shuls. Some that stand and are used as shuls and others that were destroyed. And we had we have 12 glass windows in the shul so we made a stained glass for each of the different shuls. And the 12th one is actually of the school because that was the first purchased piece of Jewish property that we had um, in Beijing. And where's the mikveh? The mikveh's at the school. Ah, so by day and by night, it, there, there are things, you know, amazing, amazing. And when you say that so many thousands of people pass through, especially in the summer... A lot of tourists. There's some 
There's Israeli groups, some of the companies that are bringing tours to China, some of them are bringing up to three groups a week to China. How do you cope? Well, they don't all come to the Chabad house, although many do. Um, If they're kosher groups, then very often they eat in the Chabad house every night. Um, On Shabbos, even the groups that are not kosher groups or necessarily religious groups will often join us for Shabbos night. And we, we cope. We have... Lots of uh, hands, and so how do you you say you speak some Chinese? You have you have help. Yes. Yeah, so in China, especially in Beijing and in the north, pretty much if you don't have Chinese, you won't really cope. So um, you know. How did you learn Chinese? Went to school. The first year we were there, I went back to school. <laughs> and um, you you had a. An English-speaking teacher who was able to guide you through? No, she was Chinese-speaking, and she didn't speak much English. So <laughs> I was in a, a group of women, all who had moved to Beijing that, that time, and we learned together. And uh, She, she showed you pictures? Well, how did you learn? She just made us chant and, <laughs> and learn. But when you're using it, when it's your daily language, which it is, we all have to learn because we spend most of the day speaking in <laughs> Chinese or Hebrew. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Your Hebrew is amazing. And Grunya's Hebrew is, is imp- all your children, their Hebrew is impressive. The accent, the, the intonation, too wonderful. So you have people helping you. You have a, a kitchen there at the restaurant. That's yeah, we have kitchen and we have staff. And together, you know, we make it happen. Awesome. Amazing, amazing. And, of course, we need to remember that this is reflecting not only what's going on in Beijing, but in other centers in China and throughout the world, and not only here in South Africa. And it's it's so reassuring, as it were, to know that wherever one travels in the world, one can find a home, which means you find a kitchen, You find a meal, you find a listening ear. Unbelievable. And please, God, it won't be long before the work gets done and Mashiach is here and the four corners of the world will have been warmed, affected, refined, and they'll all be waiting as a place where Hashem will feel comfortable. The Shem feels comfortable where we are kind to one another and where we think about him and what he wants. And so on this Erev Shabbos, Parshas Shmois, it's been so wonderful to have you, Dini, and you, Grunya, with us, sharing with us, well, even if you didn't get a chance to go anywhere on this during these holidays, you had a bird's eye view of Beijing. You sat right here and you heard about an exotic place and a certain aspect of this very, very courageous work that has been done and continues to be done, not only by the parents, but by the children as well. We wish everybody a good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. And we look forward to Please God sharing more and more uplifting stories until we are all uplifted as a nation and as a world, and we greet the Mashiach. A guten Shabbos, a guten Tomid.